Hello everyone, it is Angie, obviously, and today you are listening to episode 16? Mm, 16 of the, get. I think it's 16, let me just double check, hang on one second. I should probably have checked this before, uh, la la la, we're just gonna keep talking. Yeah, episode 16. <laughs> episode 16 of the Get Peachy podcast. Wow, that took me 20 seconds to introduce that, are you bored yet? Um, anyway, we are, we are, who are we? Uh, today, <laughs> can I just say something? It's Friday when I'm recording this, and clearly my brain has gone to mush. Should we just start again? No. Um, today I have a very special guest on. That is Emma Story Gordon, and if you don't know who she who she is, you're missing out because she is an incredible online coach, probably one of the best female online coaches, obviously, apart from me, in the industry. And um, I've got her on today because she is so knowledgeable. She has a lot of credentials and um, she's very, very knowledgeable in the science field. She has got a huge science background and um, she is going to be talking to me about diabetes. And we go into depth around what the different types of diabetes are, how you can prevent them, what you can do if you are diabetic and how to manage them. And then we go into some client questions that I had around sort of management of diabetes, but also sort of stress, talking about menopause and how that can affect diabetes as well. Um, And the fact that you can actually become diabetic when you are going through the menopause due to weight gain and that kind of thing. So this was a really, really fascinating topic. And I think even if you aren't diabetic, listening to this would be great because it gives you um, some more knowledge around the topic so that, you know, if anything ever happens, God forbid it doesn't, but to you or any family members or friends that you are more educated about this topic. Um, And if you do have any friends, family or loved ones that are diabetic that you think they might find this helpful, then please obviously do share it to them. And yeah, so I very much hope you enjoy this podcast. Sorry about the uh, awkward introduction there, but you know, hey ho, that's how things go. Hashtag real and all that. Anyway, without further ado, here's the podcast. Enjoy. Hello everyone and welcome to the Get Peachy podcast and today I have a very very special guest on that is Emma, Emma Story Gordon or you might know her as ESG, ESG Fitness and we are going to be talking to you about diabetes. So without further ado I know you hate doing introductions Emma but I'm going to make you do one anyway. Can you tell us who you are, what you do and why you are so well equipped to talk about diabetes? Okay, because you've put like the why diabetes, but I can give more context. Okay. That. Um, <laughs> so I'm an online personal trainer and an educator and a mentor for other coaches. And the reason that I have a keen interest in diabetes actually started in my last year of uni. So I did sports science as my undergrad. And it, I mean, it was vaguely interesting. And when I started, I was really into sport. Obviously, it was like, oh, you're good at sport. Why don't you just go and do that at uni? So that was basically, I w- and I was running as well, like competitively. So I was really interested in all the performance aspects. But as I kind of worked through university and realized that I wasn't going to be an elite level athlete, <laughs> um, I became more and more interested in actually the huge benefits that exercise can have to health which was so much more interesting to me than 
oh, if this person takes caffeine at this time, they'll be able to improve their performance by X amount, which has like no real difference to anyone outside of like elite sport. So one of the modules that we did in our final year was on exercise and health and how that can help in certain diseases. And one of them was diabetes. So that really like sparked my interest. And then when I finished uni, I started working in a diabetes research lab. And the first uh, job I got was in like quite a molecular lab. So we were looking at the impact of Romanoban, which is a, a drug on insulin sensitivity in the skeletal muscle and brain tissue of mice. So very like molecular based. Yeah. And then after that, I got a job working in cardiovascular disease and diabetes with like real human people at hospital and again just researching in that area so that was that was kind of where my interest was and then when I first became a personal trainer what I really wanted to do was well I was already a personal trainer but what I really wanted to do was kind of merge the two things and start like a diabetes clinic yeah and get people exercising um which never actually materialized and maybe (laughs) will one day and I actually think that I'm probably in a much better position to do it now with like a decent amount of money behind me rather than at the time when it was it, you know it's a quite a hard niche given that if you're looking at type 2 diabetes anyway it's often and again like it's a bit of a generalization but it's often people who don't particularly like exercise so if you're then trying to sell exercise to people that don't like exercise it's quite a hard sell yeah so yeah that that was my background in diabetes amazing and forever building your empire <laughs> I will wait for your diabetes uh, clinic and the health center to crop up um okay so one thing I really wanted the listeners to uh, to be able to kind of take away from this is to understand like the different types of diabetes what they can do if they are diabetic how they can prevent diabetes and that kind of thing so let's just like if we can break down the three different types of diabetes and kind of what they are yeah okay so there's actually about seven or eight yeah but like such small percentages and there's like late onset diabetes and certain forms but for the vast majority of people what you're looking at is type one type two and gestational diabetes type one is a relatively small percentage of people I think it's it makes up about five percent of all diabetics um it's an autoimmune condition so there's nothing and I and I think that when people say diabetes they normally mean type 2 yeah but it can be quite I guess annoying in some ways for type 1s because often they're painted under like well if you just changed your lifestyle maybe you know you could reverse this no no no. like type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune condition you're normally it's within your first couple of years of life usually that you realize that you're type 1 sometimes quite rarely later on in life um but that means that you're you don't produce insulin and so you have to inject insulin which is very different to type 2 which is the vast majority of people who have diabetes which I think it's about like 90% of diabetes is type 2 diabetes and this is also known as lifestyle related diabetes so that is usually to do and by the way there's huge genetic components here so we're certainly not saying like it's your fault if x y or z has happened like you may not be dealt the same cards but this is much more to do with lifestyle and you can do a hell of a lot about this and most people can reverse their type 2 diabetes with my with lifestyle modification so the the key problem with type 2 diabetes or how it forms is that 
you tend well as you store more body fat and more body fat accumulates especially around your organs you become less sensitive to the presence of insulin and when your tissues are less uh, less sensitive to the presence of insulin you need more insulin to clear the same amount of blood glucose so if we take a little step back from that actually when you eat your glucose levels in your blood will increase. That's completely normal. That's meant to happen. And then what else is meant to happen is your insulin levels also increase and that opens up your cells to clear this blood glucose. Now, if you can't clear blood glucose, you have what's known as hyperglycemia. So high blood glucose levels mm -hmm. chronically. Now, acutely high blood glucose levels are fine, are normal, are part of like eating and living. But chronically high blood glucose levels can cause real problems. So that would be, that's like the hallmark of type 2 diabetes. And that can cause things like um, increased risk of cardiovascular disease. Like some people can go blind. All of the negative side effects of having chronically high levels of blood glucose, which can be toxic. So what happens in type 2 diabetes is as you store more body fat, especially around certain organs, um, you become less sensitive to the presence of insulin, meaning that more and more insulin needs to be produced to clear the same relative amount of blood glucose. Now that develops to more and more resistance to the insulin. So the cells can't hear that insulin's here and we should be opening up to let blood glucose in. So they don't open up and don't let blood glucose in. And at some point during the development of type two diabetes, you, your beta cells, which are the cells in your pancreas that create insulin or that produce insulin kind of give up and they can't produce enough and at that point you need to start injecting with insulin because you can't produce enough insulin but as i said that can be reversed for the vast majority of people by lifestyle modification and generally by weight loss yeah um and then finally you've got gestational diabetes which for most people hopefully is acute so while you're pregnant, usually in the last trimester, um, or it would be most likely to occur then, although it can occur earlier. Um, and that's again, because you're less sensitive to the presence of insulin and yeah. Amazing, thank you. That was so in detail, but really simple to understand as well. So thank you for that. Okay, cool. So let's just go into detail then with, type one because um I actually do have a client that's husband is type one and one of the PTs that I used to work with was type one as well and I think he used to take the piss with it a little bit I don't know if he'll listen to this but he would like in not enjoy it but he would eat a lot of sweets at times just because he could kind of get away with it but anyway um what types of things would a type one diabetic person experience and how would they manage their symptoms because it's quite it can be quite severe right I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's no joke. Most people, before the invention of insulin, or the invention, before we could synthesize insulin and, and use it, most type one diabetics died, like as children, yeah. because you need, like, you know, when it's kind of funny, that isn't kind of funny, but it's <laughs> kind of funny that um, we demonize insulin so much and that, you know, there's a whole low carb yeah. hypothesis that if, because, you know, when, when you do produce insulin, it is a storage hormone, but it's meant to be. So mm -hmm. some people see that as well. When you, when you eat and insulin is increased, then you store body fat. And if you just avoided that, then, you know, you wouldn't store any body fat. And that's the whole kind of emphasis behind low carb diets or the insulin hypothesis behind the low carb diets. But you need insulin to live. And like type one diabetics are a prime example of this. And 
what I will say is that um, the management of it has become easier because now a lot of people have pumps or like continuous glucose monitors, whereas previously you're guesstimating a little bit more as to how much insulin you need. And then if things change during the day or you have a bigger meal or you're going to be very active for some reason, like that means that your insulin levels and your blood glucose levels can be totally off. Um, what so what you probably will find with any adults is that they're very good if you're a type one they're already pretty good at managing their blood glucose levels because they've had years and years of doing that um i would say that health is even more important because you're already at a higher risk of things like cardiovascular disease as a coach coaching a type one diabetic um the primary things that i would be looking out for is ideally having some kind of relationship with their diabetes specialist so that they know that any changes you're making and if someone's going from being pretty sedentary to doing quite a lot of exercise that will probably mean that their dose of insulin needs to change as well mm. is one of the coolest things about exercise and why it's so important for diabetics is that it's an insulin independent way of clearing blood glucose so what happens and I won't go like too molecular but basically what happens is when insulin is around some of the what are called glute 4 well or glucose transporters these ones are called glute 4 come to the cell surface and they kind of open up the cell and glucose can come in to be stored now insulin does that but also so does exercise stimulates these glute 4 transporters so it's that's like a great thing for type ones but it does mean that they may need to reduce the amount of insulin that they're using, which again is a good thing, but also something to be aware of so that people don't accidentally go hyperglycemic. Yeah. Yeah. And it's scary, right? I mean, I don't know if you've ever experienced it, but this particular PT that I used to work with, by the way, when I said he used to take the piss, he just used to eat lots of sweets after training. <laughs> um he had a couple of hypos and it was really scary. And, you know, he'd be lay, lay on the floor, like tapping at the, the corner um unit where all of his like meds were kept and you kind of had to throw them to him and he was absolutely fine because he he dealt with it so much in his life that he knew exactly what to do he knew to lie down to inject this da, da, da. but it's quite scary when it happens because it's just it takes over that person completely yeah yeah and and like I said most people are quite good at at managing those things uh, I do remember being in a shop once and this a guy, and I think he was taking the piss. I don't know if he was or not. Like, never said he looked a little bit suspect. He just came in and started eating a chocolate bar, right? And the lady was like, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm diabetic. I need it. <laughs> he just walked out without paying for it. And I was like, that's a good line. That is a good line. Maybe he needs a card for that. Most people have, like, cards. Like, yeah, yeah I mean, most, people, most legit people probably have, have cards. <laughs> Or like if you were diabetic, you'd normally kind of carry around some kind of like a glucose drink or something that's really yeah. high sugar. So that if you are going hyper, you can just. Maybe he was just caught short that day. <laughs> yeah, let's go with that. He definitely yeah, was a chocolate bar. Yeah. OK, so obviously, I mean, we could probably talk forever about type two, but let can we talk a little bit more about almost yeah, prevention and management. So if we look at like management first, if you are type two, let's say somebody has, you know, just been to the doctor and they've been diagnosed with type two diabetes and they're like, oh my God, what on earth do I need to do here? Obviously they'd get a lot of help from their, um, their doctor, but, you know, as, you know, a coach in the industry, 
if I had a client turn around to me and say, oh, I'm now type two, what are the concerns that I should be worried about and what are the types of things that I could be doing to support that client, do you think? So this happens quite a lot because often that diagnosis has been potentially a long time coming. And I can't remember what this psychological term is, but it's basically like a shock to the system. And you're like, shit, now I really need to do something about this because you know, for years I've been going to the doctor and they have said I should be doing more exercise. I should maybe be looking at what I'm eating more, but I just kind of, you know, there's always other things going on and maybe that you have barriers or maybe you're like worried about trying certain things or maybe you've tried stuff and it hasn't worked before, but now you've got this diagnosis, you're like, right, I really need to do something about this. What's quite nice about type two is that there's not like that much considerate, like extra consideration for most type two diabetics. Obviously there's just considerations for all individuals with exercise, but for the added um, point that they're type two diabetic, there isn't that much. And that's because, especially at the point of diagnosis, you probably won't be on that much medication. And if you are, it might be something like metformin. When you're taking insulin, that becomes a little bit more complicated. Again, as a personal trainer, you just need to be aware of things like hyperglycemia and and maybe like if you're coaching face to face or even if you're coaching online like make sure that they remember to have something sweet there in case something does happen but for most type twos who are not like quite far progressed on that disease spectrum they won't be on insulin which is great so you don't need to worry about that and actually they're going to see huge benefits from being active And another thing to remember is that muscle is the biggest site of glucose disposal in your body. So you can think of it like the more muscle you have, the more metabolically healthy you can be. So that's like one really good goal to go for. Um, The other one is just moving. Something that I like to add in with uh, type two diabetics or type one is uh, post, uh, sorry, post meal, like movement called post perandial exercise. Right. But it, it doesn't, doesn't have to be strenuous. I don't mean like eat your full dinner and then go out for a run and you'll feel awful and really sick. (laughs) It could just be like going for a walk or like cleaning up the kitchen or basically not sitting down and watching TV because that's what most people do. They have this, usually the largest meal of their day, a huge glucose spike. And then one of the things that tends to go the quickest is this like, initial phase of glucose response so we actually have like sorry initial phase of insulin response we actually have two insulin responses and the initial fast phase tends to be um one of the things that kind of goes first so actually if you can get moving post meal and remember i said that that's an insulin independent way of clearing blood glucose that's a really good thing and and it's such a like a small but impactful thing that you can do every day it also i find from a behavioral standpoint stops like stops you overeating a little bit so if you're like right I'm gonna have my dinner then I'm gonna go out for a 10 minute walk and then if I come back and I'm still hungry I'll eat again but usually what I find is that it's stopping eating that's quite hard I'm like I might finish dinner and I'm like I'm still hungry and really it's because like my hunger levels haven't caught up with me or I ate too fast or whatever whereas if I go away for 10 minutes and then I have like the headspace to make that conscious decision are you actually still hungry do you actually want more food or where you just, you know, I don't know whether eating too fast. So giving that kind of pause as well is really useful from an overeating standpoint. And most people tend to overeat in the evening. So that will probably help with diet as well, but also, you know, that it's benefiting your, your blood glucose control as well. So those are kind of like little things that I tend to add in 
Um, the research shows that for most people, 5% weight loss will reverse type 2 diabetes for them. 5%, is that all? That's crazy. Yeah. Um, and that's really, really impressive. Uh, and, and I think that a lot of people see it as like a long-term diagnosis, like now I'm diabetic, so there's nothing I can do about it. And that's not true at all. Mm. And I mean, there's been, there were some headlines that showed that you could reverse type 2 diabetes in seven days. And really what they showed by that is that if you're, if you're looking at fasting glucose levels, then it can be done in seven days. And it was essentially a seven days on like a very low calorie diet, but it was just quite impressive the way that um, it, it can be that quick to have such a big impact and longer term, the way that's working. And this is why, if anyone wants to look this up, this is known as the Newcastle diet and it's worked by, I can't remember his first name, but Taylor et al, probably like 2015 or something, but really, really interesting. And I've seen him talk numerous times and his, his theory um, is known as like the personal fat threshold theory. And this kind of explains why some people get type two diabetes at a higher body fat level and some people get it at a lower body fat level and how I was saying that there's this genetic component as well. So we can't choose where we store fat. And most of the time, like when we're working with clients, that's like, oh, I don't like that I've got bingo wings or I don't like that I've got a little bit more fat here. What can I do about it? And I'm like, you can't spot reduce fat. But what's actually even more impactful than that is that you can't choose if you're losing subcutaneous fat, which might be like around your arms and legs, or if you're losing visceral fat, which is around your organs. And that's really the fat that causes so much metabolic complications. And so some people and this is more the genetic predisposition, store more body fat around their organs, which means that they're more likely to develop metabolic complications at a lower BMI or at a lower body fat percentage. And yeah, that can cause problems. Hmm. Just going back to that study, because my brain was just ticking then, is that where the whole like Charles Polygrin stuff kind of evolved from? Like, oh, if you store fat around your hips, you've got your higher estrogen dominant and that kind of thing. I don't know if you... Yeah, I do remember that. that. I think, like, to be honest, I don't really know where that came from. Like, I mean, there it probably came from the fact that women who have higher estrogen store more body fat around their their bums and stuff but yeah if anyone's kind of giving you a diet based on hormones you can I mean yeah send it to Angie and she'll pick <laughs> up about it but but I wouldn't like don't no don't take any advice from them it makes me very sad to say that I actually went to one of his um what do you call it like I went to one of his PTs once and I got told x y and z and I wasn't allowed to eat carbs I had to take these supplements and this was going back like nine years ago now or something and yeah just crazy well when I finished uni I was a personal trainer in London for a year and I had I'd set up two interviews one at UP and one at 639 and if I'd gone to UP I just feel like my life would have been very different I mean I don't I actually don't think I would stay there to be fair but yeah that we're probably talking about like PT politics now that yeah, yeah. not <laughs> a lot of people might know but um but yeah I think I think you know when somebody is a U or has been a UP coach before you definitely know by their content etc anyway let's get on to the third type just so you say gestational I always thought it was gestational but that's just because I'm Greek and we don't have a soft G we oh. have 
Yeah. Um, well, you can say it both ways, Nose, but like we both know that I say things wrong a lot of the time. So <laughs> don't worry, that's fine. I have heard it say both ways. So okay, cool. So would somebody need to be kind of ill of health to, you know, get this throughout their pregnancy, or can it just happen? Like, is it a stroke of bad luck? It can absolutely be a stroke of bad luck, but you are far more likely to experience it if you're overweight and inactive. So those are two things to kind of keep aware of. And obviously at some points of pregnancy and depending on other things that are going on, you may not be able to be as active as you previously were or as active as you might like to be or start an exercise regime or any of those things. So a lot of the time with gestational diabetes, it's about monitoring blood glucose levels and making sure they're staying within a healthy range. Um, And that might mean taking some insulin if that's what you've been prescribed, but that's kind of more like obviously working with your doctor to make sure that you're fit and you're healthy. And there are, I guess, more limitations on you a little bit because you might not be able to exercise as much or change your diet as much. You certainly wouldn't be going on the Newcastle diet, which is like a 600 calorie day diet, which by the way, I'm certainly not suggesting, but I do think there's a time and a place for it in certain individuals and, and for a short period of time, right? I think it's a six to eight, six or eight week diet. And then, you know, the real work starts with how do we maintain this long-term? And what they've shown is, although you see this big um, drop in fasting blood glucose levels in a very short period of time, if you want to maintain those results, you need to lose body fat over a longer period of time and have less body fat around these organs so uh, just going back to that study I think uh, this might be the same one or one similar but there was a study done that was about obese clients and they were put on like a thousand calorie diet or something for six weeks and then they looked at the adherence of their weight loss over a year and onwards and the adherence was uh, like they'd lost weight and they kept off doing a really kind of hard and fast diet versus going steady and slow so it is really interesting because obviously I know there's so much um confliction around like should we go hard and fast should we go steady and slow and it's really just like an it depends scenario isn't it yeah it totally is and I think what's hard is that the wrong people often want to listen to the wrong piece of advice if that makes sense like You, you'll say that and then someone who's already lean will be like oh great so I'll die on 600 yeah. calories like, no absolutely not like in these very extreme cases and you know often what you do find with these extremes as well is that you've taken away a lot of the choice for someone like if you're like you just have to drink this shake and actually you're at, you know your your health is at such a high risk that people are going to stick to this you're not really learning anything about dieting or about long term and, and actually we both know extremes aren't actually that hard like not eating 600 calories a day isn't actually that hard but actually eating like 1800 calories a day long term over time and practicing moderation and balance like that's really hard and there's no way around it like at some point you have to get to that they even even someone who's obese and has a lot of excess stored energy can't live on 600 calories a day forever like they will still have to come back to moderation yeah there's no like there's no way of getting out of figuring it out. It's just that for a period of time, yeah, that might. And also if you think about like the population you were just talking about, if you have someone who's very overweight, exercise isn't enjoyable, then they probably want to see some results. Like it's really motivating to see those short-term results. 
And then maybe they're in a body that they now feel like they can exercise in. And then that makes them feel good. And that makes them make healthier choices. That's that's what came up in the study. It was actually the psychological benefits of actually being lighter was so much more helpful that it helped them to move more and that kind of thing. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, And and I agree with that. Like, I think a lot of people are like, okay, well, we'll take your total daily energy expenditure and take off 15%. And I'm like, someone who's overweight and has like a hell of a lot of excess energy can be in a far bigger deficit than that if yeah. they want to be like yeah. if they want quicker results like I don't see you know you'd work with the individual obviously but I think that that actually works quite a lot better many times yeah um I have a couple of client questions um and I'm just going to read them out um so one of my cl- one of my clients sent me this one which is about a uh, gestational gestational Uh, my GP has told me that my weight nutrition and exercise are very good so my pre-diabetic condition is due to purely gestational diabetes in my third pregnancy and that I'm just very unlucky what therefore would your advice be given my diet is already well managed so she still suffers with her diabetes occasionally sometimes it can you know she'll go and get checked and it's slightly over and then she'll go and get checked again it's under so is this just a just a con like a conscious effort for the rest of her life do you think oh so oh so she still has diabetes after being pregnant yeah um i so there's little things that you can do um like we were talking about maybe postprandial walking would be a benefit maybe looking at your diet a little bit closer so maybe it could be I mean, you don't have to go low carb. That's another bit of a myth that you have to go low carb if you're diabetic, but it might be better to sway towards a more Mediterranean style diet, which generally for health is like the best diet to be consuming anyway. Um, And apart from that and building as much muscle as possible, because as we said, that's your biggest site of glucose disposal. It sounds like you're doing everything right. Like there's not really much more that you could be doing. Yeah, I actually worked with this client for about two years and we just had to close, we had to closely monitor it and she is so healthy, she's ridiculously healthy and it was just so unfortunate that she still had diabetes after her pregnancy and um, there was one particular time where she went back to the doctors and her sugars were slightly elevated and too high and when we actually looked at what she was eating she was having like protein yogurts and obviously that that added sugar in that she felt that you know it could have been that so she reduced that but um, but yeah anyway (laughs) another thing that as well it, it depends on how that's being monitored because what's way more impactful than looking at fasting glucose is your hba1c which is going to look at like over time what's happening to your glucose levels so yeah i mean i'm i would assume that her doctor would look at that but sometimes they do just do a fasting glucose test and if you're i don't know if you're not actually fasted or you're like oh yeah i did have like a sip of coffee or something or like a sip of whatever or wine (laughs) yeah something (laughs) yeah it can have an impact because you've recently done obviously a lot of studying around menopause I mean is there any correlation between menopause and diabetes at all do you think there is for numerous reasons one most women well not most women well actually it is most women but I don't want it to be like a subtle (laughs) but most women put on weight around the menopause yeah they also have a fat redistribution so as we were talking about more body fat stored around their middle which is also around their organs which can cause metabolic problems many women become less active many women lose muscle mass because they're less active and because it's harder to build muscle mass 
as your estrogen levels drop. So there is a higher risk of type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease and certain forms of cancer. And part of that increased risk is also to do with aging. Like Mm -hmm. people worry so much about like risk of cancer from different things. Like the the primary thing is that you're aging, like your cells have reproduced, well, have uh, divided more times which means there's more chance of error, which means there's more chance of cancer. Like the, the number one thing that is going to increase your risk, risk of cancer is just how long you live, which again is why cancer rates go up so much because we're living longer. Mm. Um, but yeah, they do. Like there is an impact there. And again, that's why it's so, so important to make sure you are resistance training, you're staying active, you're monitoring your diet, that you do go on HRT if that's appropriate to you and, and that you can. Yeah. Um, yeah. Amazing. Um, okay, by the way, I'm so bad at reading questions out just like yourself. Oh, right, <laughs> yeah. um, advice on managing blood sugar between mealtimes, i.e. no snacks or eating at certain times, how much time between meals? So kind of should she time time clock? Time clock? Is that the right word? Watch the clock? No, watch the clock. <laughs> um, do you know what? For, for general management of, of diabetes, it's kind of like you're looking at overarching fat loss if it's type two if it's type one it depends like how much insulin you're taking and when and kind of what works for you in that respect there's not necessarily a right or wrong way to do it but I'm quite a big advocate of not snacking continuously throughout the day I don't think we would probably evolve to constantly be consuming food and actually periods of whether you want to call it fasting or just not eating. And I don't mean like you need to do a 24 hour fast. I mean, don't eat between breakfast and lunch. Like don't constantly, you don't have to have a snack every hour on the hour. You'll be absolutely fine. And I think for so many reasons, one of which metabolic health, but even just like your concentration, your digestion, your productivity, the ability to sit with a little bit of hunger, like all of these things are so beneficial. And, and I would say enjoyment of food as well, instead of constantly grazing and never actually allowing yourself to get a little bit hungry. Like I was talking to Amelia about this and I was like, I love before, like not eating anything between lunch and dinner because I'm like, I'm hungry before dinner. Yeah. And actually, like you can't like sometimes within fitness like it's so pc now it's like oh oh what so you like feeling hungry like oh this isn't that like pro anorexia or something and like absolutely not but food tastes better when you're a bit hungry yeah like see try it for a week like give yourself maybe breakfast lunch dinner and one snack and see how much more you enjoy every single meal mm. and how much more mindful you are as well because snack that my biggest issue with snacking is that it's mindless most people are just like picking up something here and there. They're not sitting down and actually enjoying what they're consuming. They just pick at stuff. And it's so much more enjoyable and so much more satiating to actually sit down and enjoy a meal than it is to be constantly grazing. So from a diabetes perspective, not really here nor there. And actually diet adherence is going to be way more important. But generally, I think it's a good, it's a good idea to have periods of time where you're not thinking about food where you're not grabbing something else and yeah and just on that actually it's quite interesting you say that because obviously you and Amelia work with different clientele and I think probably for her and you know I've experienced this myself with you know relationship with food stuff that actually me being that hungry is a bad place for me to be because I can that then you know because I've not I don't know like 
establish that that's a safe zone for me. If I then go and eat, I feel like I, I, I will overeat. So I think it's very much dependent on, you know, the type of person you're working with, but more on their sort of background of dieting. Like, yeah, I, I guess that's probably saying it's more like a psychological. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. One thing I would say for that is that and I've got in the habit of doing this and I just always do it now, but I always eat an apple before my dinner. Yeah. Because it just like then you're just kind of like, OK, I'm not starving. Yeah. And yeah. I guess what I mean is I don't mean being like starving hungry before dinner, but I mean like allowing yourself to be a little bit hungry. Yeah. Because it would taste so much better when you are that like you're a little bit hungry. And I think sometimes people have this like almost like a fear of hunger. And for some people that maybe is, you know, if you're struggling with binge eating or something, then this this is the complete opposite advice of what you should be taking. Yeah. But if you don't struggle with that and you're someone who just constantly sort of grazes, trying this might be might make you enjoy food more and might make it way easier for you to stick to your diet as well 100% and I don't want to like stereotype anyone here but so when I say this I mean this with kindness but for example let's say we had an office worker who was just mindlessly grazing on biscuits and stuff all day I think that's probably what you need you know you don't you don't need to have that donut that biscuit those grapes there's something else you give yourself time between meals so that you actually get hungry Um, yeah because you'll enjoy those calories way more if you sit down and have something you enjoy rather than like if I asked you what you'd eaten for the day you'd probably be like oh I had this for lunch and this for dinner and whatever I had for breakfast you wouldn't be like and then I had two grapes and I had half a biscuit and blah blah and, and I think like office workers for sure because there's always something in the canteen and that's yeah, really hard to avoid but also like busy mums as well who you know the kids eating like half of what they were going to eat so you just kind of well you know I'll just eat this or like I'll grab something off their plate instead of making myself something nice and all that adds up as well yeah absolutely those half fish fingers that your kids left on the plate and peas um okay next question in terms of in terms of supplements for gestational I take turmeric is this a good choice and what other supplementation would you recommend for pre-diabetes turmeric is a good choice so the active ingredient in it is curcumin and it does slightly increase insulin sensitivity all of these things are basically like a drop in the ocean though like when you're looking at things that increase insulin sensitivity like there's loads of research around this right so certain things in your diet I think there's even evidence for like orange peel extract and um, chili powder and stuff like that there's also evidence that if you go into a sauna so if you're raising your your body temperature basically anything that moves your body out of its normal um, homeostatic range and means it has to adapt to something so like being in a sauna also increases uh, insulin sensitivity. But I'm what- so sorry, I can't stop laughing because I know you've got a sauna and I've seen you put like little like gifts up and stuff. Is that what it is? It <laughs> is, yeah. <laughs> I just had this vision. That's why I do it, guys. Insulin sensitivity. <laughs> but my point is like, if you're doing if you're doing that, if you're doing these things to increase insulin sensitivity, what's going to be way, way, way more impactful is just going for a walk. Mm. Or even like on top of that, like anything that's like high intensity, exercise and what's incredible is some of the research around high intensity interval training shows that you can increase insulin sensitivity from as little as two bouts of 10 second exercise like it's such a small amount now I'm certainly not saying you're going to get an incredible shape doing that 
but what you can do is improve your health and this is why and I'm sure Angie does the same on when she's coaching you guys is that it like a little bit of exercise is so so important like it's so impactful and I it's so common to think and I probably catch myself thinking it as well like well if I can't get to the gym it doesn't matter there's no point doing it actually doing doing even a five minute home workout like five or ten minutes has a huge impact on your house and that's so so worth doing so realizing that those little things but as as a diabetic like especially doing some kind of hit training really really beneficial for insulin sensitivity Thank you. Okay, next question. Can macros affect pre-diabetes? Obviously, it's all about sugar control, but what about the other macros? Um, I would, again, suggest like a Mediterranean diet. I wouldn't say macros have a huge impact. It's generally way more about the amount of body fat that you're storing and how active you are than it is about even carbohydrate. And there's research that shows that you can reverse type 2 diabetes on a high-carb diet or a low-carb diet. The fundamental factor seems to be the reduction of body fat around your organs like that's that's what's driving it so whether you do that via a calorie deficit but eating carbs or via a calorie deficit but not eating carbs it's kind of up to you people do tend to get really quite good results on low-carb diets probably for various reasons one of them being if you're monitoring your blood glucose you see benefits really quickly and it's just like seeing scale weight results really quickly right that's really encouraging and then you kind of get into it the other thing you'll see is scale rate results really quickly because you're reducing carbohydrate and carbohydrate requires water to be stored. So you tend to see quite a big drop on the scales. And initially that's really quite motivating. The other thing is that a lot of people say that they experience reduced hunger on a lower carb diet. So again, that could be something that helps adherence, um, but you don't need to go low carb. Uh, yeah. But a lot of people do find that it is useful to them and I, I don't know if maybe one of the other benefits is some people just don't like tracking their calories and one way of kind of knowing that you're going to be in a deficit is to take out the biggest food group from your diet yeah which is carbohydrates the, the, really the problem there is is more like life balance and if you start to resent that or if you feel like you can't ever have carbs um or if you start binging on carbs because you've like restricted them so from a physiological perspective it doesn't hugely matter either way but from a behavioral perspective there are pros and cons there yeah absolutely um cool okay final question to what extent do you believe stress contributes to rising blood sugars and this client says my sleep is excellent oh good well done well done on sleep um this is quite a hard one to answer because Acute stress is fine. Chronic stress can have implications. And most people who are stressed aren't choosing to be stressed. So it's not like, like, oh yeah, well, if I only knew that chronic stress was a bad thing, then I'd just stop being stressed. So I think rather than kind of worry about that, like try and reframe the stress that you have. And I think this is such a, such a useful thing. And I talk to my clients about it all the time, but all of the stress in your life is basically all of the good things right you're like you, you might be stressed at the moment because work's getting really busy because you're doing a new launch because you're moving house and all of those things are good things if I took all that away from you if I was like oh, okay well you're stressed cool I'll take your all your clients away <laughs> I'll take your job away and I'll take the house away and I'll take like your partner away and, and the dog that you have to look after as well 
all of your stresses when you really get to the bottom of it like they're good things like you're stressed because you're a busy mom and you've got to take your kids to five different after school clubs and they've got exams coming up and all this stuff like that's a good stress that means you've got kids that you love that are out doing fun things and I think as soon as you kind of reframe that it doesn't mean that it's not hard right I'm saying it's still not hard to fit everything in it's still a hard thing but when you realize actually my busy stressed out life means it's a rich life means that I've got loads of stuff going on like if I if I wasn't stressed about work it mean I didn't care about work if I wasn't stressed about making sure my kids pass my, their exams it means they don't really care that my kids are going to pass their exams or not if I wasn't taking them to football and stuff it means that they wouldn't like have something that they enjoy doing so when you like take a step back and think of all of your stresses you normally realize that they're all positives in your life and there's actually really cool research on our perception of stress and how that impacts like our reality and it's done if anyone wants to look it up and think it's Alina Crum and it's one of the best like TED talks I've ever watched but she goes through loads of different areas of research, but it, it shows that people's perception of how they view a stressful situation impacts their performance. So if people think that stress makes you perform at your lowest, then that tends to be what happens. Whereas if people think that stress makes you perform at your highest, that also tends to be what happens. And the, like there's examples of both, right? You could, you could see, so they showed <clears throat> a video kind of, explain or like I guess portraying both of these things so there was one where someone was about to like take a a shot in basketball and missed because there was so much pressure on them but then there was also one on the other side that's like who nobody runs pbs in training right you you run a pb at the olympic games because there's so much pressure on you and actually you normally perform at your best at pressure you're never doing like even if we're thinking about stuff that we do like if I'm giving a talk or something I'm gonna I perform better under a little bit of pressure or if I have to reach a deadline like actually my best work is done because I'm really focused and there's that bit of pressure there's an element of pressure to get something done so you if you view it as actually this this stress this level that like this pressure is a, a good thing not a bad thing I actually think weirdly that reduces like the negative connotations of stress like these like elevated cortisol levels chronically which are a bad thing. Yeah. 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 And I, I, one thing I was thinking about here is, you know, if somebody had got a particularly hard lifestyle as well, you know, I know actually I spoke to one of my clients recently and she is really stressed. She's just started a new job, but also she just found out her grandma's got cancer and, you know, and she's, she's struggling right now and it's stressful because they're having to take of her, her treatments and that kind of thing. And she is, feeling stressed and we kind of had to talk about her putting boundaries in place as well so I think boundaries is a huge element of stress that you need to um, implement as well because if you have got a super stressful life life you need to look after your health as well and having those boundaries in place that if you are doing everything for everyone else you need to look after number one as well so oh, yeah you can't pour from an empty cup can you no no um and that it's brings so you- hard to get your head into that mind frame right <sighs> of like oh so I need to you know it can feel almost like selfish at the time like I need to take yeah. this time out but actually if you take that time out and whatever it is you do you go for a walk you do some journaling you take yourself to the gym or you see a friend whatever you come back a much better person like you're filling up your cup and then you can give more 
Yeah, yourself instead of a shell. A shell. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, cool. Okay, I think that's the end of our questions now. So, just want to say a massive thank you for coming on. It's been a pleasure. For anyone who doesn't know, Emma is also my business mentor as well. So, um, I've absolutely loved today's chat. Thank you so so much. And if people want to find you, where is the easiest place for them to find you? And also, if anyone's got any questions as well, where can they get in contact with you? Yes, I answer all DMs on Instagram. So just shoot me a message at ESG Fitness or go to my website, which is esgfitness.co.uk. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I will obviously share all of your details in the show notes. Thank you so much.